Oh, you do the beginning bit, right? That's your Hi, job. everybody, and welcome to the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast with myself, Henry Femby Taylor. Vicky Reynolds is here in the background, but pretending not to be. Jonathan Monkley is definitely here, aren't you, Jonathan? He is. Hello. We've got Neil Thompson, as always. Howdy. Simon Evans. Hello, hello. And our special guest today. Would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Yeah, um, Ian Gordon. Um, Long-time listener, first-time caller. Very excited <laughs> to be here. Uh, I'm lucky enough to work at Highways England, um, and I'm generally a digital twin enthusiast, is how I would describe myself. Excellent. And with that, we'll get started. So, we're going to talk about good, the bad, and the ugly of digital twins. So, what I was thinking in terms of an angle, looking at, based on what Ian's article was basically saying, how could digital twins cause an apocalypse? We could talk about what's good about them, what's bad about them, and then explore what mistakes were made in the past with like BIM and digital engineering adoption and how we could potentially learn from that to improve digital twin adoption. We could go down the apocalypse route. That'd be quite an interesting podcast because it's like you get 25 minutes of content on whether twins are, are good, bad, or evil. That's, that's basically where we where we started from. To me, there's like small evil and big evil, right? So mm -hmm. I, I feel like one of the things we could touch on that we talked about last time was just how to avoid evilness. But evilness in like an organization like Highways England isn't, um, isn't we're gonna burn the world down. It's more like the shift from lawful goods to chaotic goods or lawful neutral like it's the move away from everything works perfectly to um actually public organizations are a bit of a mess and and so getting you know people like me who get really excited about gemini principles and flourishing systems and all of those sort of things have a bit of a challenge translating that into like bloody hell what do we actually do now to make this work across our big unwieldy organization so that, that's one side of things and then obviously yes. If you take that to extremes, it's then, well, let, let's let's not cause the apocalypse, but, but that's kind of the in extremis version of that argument, right? Okay, so let's start with, so hello, Ian. Hello. I'm really excited to talk to you because you're our first person that's trying to Very build good. a twin at a huge scale. Um, and I guess, you know, we spoke to Oliver Letwin okay. previously, you know, um, we spoke to Oliver Letwin and he spoke about this converging of networks and, um, you know, it, and the possible pitfalls and some of the benefits of that. And I think it's quite interesting from your perspective, because you're one of these people that, you know, when he was a government minister, it would have been a concern. I mean, a major part of his story, he wrote, um, you know, in, in the podcast, we spoke about his book um, and he spoke about, you know, somebody trying to drive their autonomous vehicle onto the M4 uh, it didn't allow him to do it because all the systems were down and it was illegal to drive a car manually on the M4 at this time in the future and all those types of things. So I think it's quite interesting to to go from that conversation to this, to your sort of the one of the founding people in creating that converged network from a, a roads perspective. So I just wondered, so where do you start? What, what, what do you think about what's what's going on where, you know, and all those types of things? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing that you realize with a, an organization like Highways England, which is big and complicated and has many, you know, specialist departments built around particular bits of the asset lifecycle and such, and, and a huge, considerable supply chain, is that it's, you're not going to, there isn't going to be a controlling mind. Mm -hmm. Like, this idea that there's going to be the digital twin architect for Highways England who sits there and builds the Highways England digital twin just doesn't reflect how organizations of that scale work. So I think the really interesting question is, given that money is going to be spent in this space, uh, taxpayers' money, I should note, what is the kind of, what kind of centralized influence should be, you know, made in order to ensure that those investments to some extent align because you know a thing that you've touched on a lot in your podcast is you know been didn't quite work out the way we intended it to in every instance um and, and i think you'll get that you'll get that phenomenon writ large uh, given that 
there's people within any sort of infrastructure owner that are approaching this from a very uh, sort of BIM asset construction perspective. How do we do that better? But then because of the focus of digital twins on operations and kind of making the rest of the infrastructure that isn't currently under construction working better, you then have to reconcile that sort of BIM angle, which will be present in one part of the organization with the operations angle and with the econometrics angle and, and with the maintenance angle. Um, and the chances of a single digital twin doing all of those things for everyone is, is extremely unlikely, but that doesn't mean that you can't have some sort of common intellectual foundation for that and some common infrastructure. And, and I think that's what I've been trying to figure out in my role. And I'm, I'm hoping I'm not the only one out there trying to do this, which is like, what is that foundation? Mm. And obviously the information management framework that, that CDBB published recently is a good start, uh, but still quite theoretical. Um, so it's, again, how do you translate that into practice in the real world? That, that's, yeah. that's the question. Almost that first adjacent step, isn't it? Because this is going to be a long-term journey to get to the ultimate, I guess, the ultimate realization of these things. I was going to say destination there, uh, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was trying to avoid saying it. I, I also avoided saying the word unicorn there. So the two interesting things there, well, apart from the fact that it's extremely contract, extremely complex, a long journey. Having knowing how our country works of like government cycles, funding cycles. Um, if a if a if a target is ten years away, is it is it is it going to constantly evolve into something? Do we need that kind of well, look? This is the end game, or is it just kind of? I'm not going to say a journey, but is it kind of a every year it's going to change into something slightly different as we learn more about what we want to achieve? Because obviously everyone talks about the system of systems and everything's going to be connected, but ultimately, do we think it'll be uh, lots of different digital twins achieving public good in in different ways? rather than one system that's all connected together and everyone's, there's a singularity control in the country. Is it going to be highways England twin, uh, twins of hospitals, power network grids, all kind of finding their own way into how they can use this technology and this kind of concept? Or is it something we're just going to have to deal with as and when we develop ways of doing stuff, um, a client achieves something that's really good? Because we have got clients now that are exploring this, um, not in any kind of control or standardized manner. They just want to explore the idea of how they can use twins and use the tech. So do you think it'll, every year it'll evolve? God, do you think, do you, are you going to set a journey or are you just going to kind of plow down the road in, in a way that you, you think is going to help I with England? <laughs> I, I, to me, I'm always a, someone that's interested in doing the plumbing first because um, I think if you get that foundation in place, from day one, that gives you a lot more freedom in the future. Um, so, so what does your plumbing look like then? What if you said housing and plumbing? So fundamentally, there's a common, there's ultimately a, a, a sort of finite amount of things that one can know about a highways network, right? Um, and if you, uh, and ultimately a subset of that is the finite number of useful things that you can know about a highways network. There's, there's probably some things that one can know that aren't particularly useful. So cr creating that, having a view, having a defined view of that, which, you know, it aligns with that kind of concept of an ontology, then starts to tell you what the dimensions that one could build twins in. Um, and ultimately, I think it's that common set of definitions and that common data model that, that we should be investing in at the moment in, on the assumption that potentially being a first mover in this space isn't necessarily the best idea. Um, we might want to see some other people do some of the shinier stuff first. But, but similarly, it, it feels like as the concept of a digital twin evolves, um, it doesn't necessarily just building the application right now, the application layer probably isn't as useful as that kind of common storage and schema layer, um, by which I mean those definitions, the, the interrelationships between data entities and ultimately how you would express them as, as structured information rather than expressing them as a user interface, which tends to be where a lot of the focus goes these days. Um, but that said, 
there's very few people that will give you budget just to do those first two things without creating some sort of nice user interface to, to accomplish something. I think the other thing that, that kind of struck me while you were talking is there's going to be different types of twins, albeit feeding from that common set of data. It, it feels like there are, probably, there are probably more commonality and twin functionality between different operators and between different constructors than there is necessarily within an organization. So it might be that if Highways England or Network Rail or whoever solves the operations question and, and creates a really useful way for React to use digital twins to react to phenomenon in the moment, that that's something that has more commonality with other control centers than, you know, there is commonality between Highways England's operations centers and Highways England's construction projects, which necessarily look at different parts of the asset lifecycle. I've got a question to actually follow on from that. Um, obviously, there's a heck of a lot of work you guys need to do to actually like, step into this field. And you were talking about getting funding um, to get to do stuff. Did, have you started to explore what the, like, the strong business cases are and the business drivers, like immediate business drivers that are for Highways England to start to explore this? I think it's quite. I think it's quite difficult to go to anyone and say, "I want to try a thing," just because there's been some good articles and it could be useful. You have to kind of really pin, underpin it with a business problem, um, uh, to kind of to kind of whet the appetite of any any business really to say, "Well, look, here's a problem you've got." So safety management, for example, on, on highways through the use of a digital twin of some kind with with, with live data coming from, from cars or using the existing data you've collected on. on or traffic management, we could improve the safety on roads through this. If, if you can start to explore that at the moment. Yeah, and I, I think to, to my earlier point, um, that business case is going to vary by the point in the asset lifecycle. I think the thing that's been obvious, you know, for a long time in the infrastructure sector, whether it's roads or rail, in the UK in particular is we are trying to always squeeze out more from a fixed set of infrastructure. So it's, it's almost, mm. well, whilst there obviously is investment going on, in most instances, it's prohibitively expensive to expand capacity just by building, you know, more lanes or yeah. by, you know, extending, you know, more, more rail lines. So there's obviously, you know, timetabling and modeling questions there, but I think the really interesting part comes in how do we respond in real time to uh, unexpected incidents? Mm -hmm. And this is, this is something that I think is common both in rail and highways is, is that this sense from the people that run the roads and the rail that if we could just have a more effective decision-making process, and a better understanding of, of how to react to phenomenon as they arise, arise, we would be we would be able to extract more capacity from um, from the network. Because certainly from my time in network rail, you know, there's specific choke points in the network, particularly now that we're running like 24-hour trains, 24 trains per hour through Blackfriars Station and the like. And there's particular choke points where your reaction to a failure at that point can make the difference between a mm a day that's merely bad and a day where basically no one gets home and everyone has to pile yeah. onto Ubers. And I think when, when you translate that into the network of networks and see how those things pour between modes of transport, you're into a vast multi-dimensional problem that if you solve it, it's, it's incredibly valuable to, to, the, to the, the country. Which does come to an interesting case, isn't it? Because we're talking about that business case for investment. And I think, I can't remember who I was having this discussion with. Um, it was talking about, well, if we could... Uh, spend money on improving different pieces of infrastructure um, we should look at the multiplier effect on which one offers mm. the best bang for your buck and the example given was you know uh, there's a higher multiplier of investing into broadband than investing into roads um, you know let's just say for example it's two times for uh, two times the benefit for broadband and perceived 1.5 percent for roads um, my argument to that was, well, actually, uh, the thing is about roads and roads and rails to some extent are slightly different things because it depends how they're seen. Because I think from the ec economic modeling that we have from a benefits perspective is is more to do with 
it as an operational asset and it does things with passengers in the current view of what a passenger does. Um, what I don't think it's economically measured against is it as an intermediary good within, a, within the supply chains that it holds. You think of like, um, internet retail, the deliveries and all that type of stuff. And the other side of it is with the introduction of autonomous vehicles and the, the types of productivity that would be unlocked and things like broadband being a subservice to the road with autonomous vehicles, it starts changing the dynamics of the benefits case that I believe. So I guess the question is, you know, back to that digital twin world, is it, do, do we need to change how we view the function of a road in, you know, so for me, I get excited about working on roads because I see it as a future platform for, um, for automation. Um, does, how does the rest of the world see that? Open question to the floor. What's an intermediary good? <laughs> an intermediary good is a um, a good that's in so raw materials. You dig them out of the ground. You turn them into um, a part for a car. That that part goes in the car. That part is an intermediary good. The final good is the car. The diesel pump is an intermediary good because it's a a a a, a, a product like a piece of the that's puzzle. within the assembly. Right. For example. Okay. I'll just I'll break out my GCSE uh, geography homework <laughs> and I'll just brush up on this. It's economics. Yes, the question you're asking economics. is, my bad. Is a is a digital twin an enabler to mobility as a service? Yes. Like, do you do you need a certain level of digital twins in order to be able to deal with the interrelatedness that that mobility as a service demands? Mm. Um, I think you could you could make a good argument for that, right? Arguably, um, yes, yeah. I guess it's again back to the definition wanted, of what is or isn't a twin, isn't it? And or is it, or is it a clone? That's an interesting term that was used yesterday. Digital clone. It's going to be turned into a digital twin. I'm sorry. That's, in, sorry, that's an interesting nuance there. What, what do you mean by a digital clone as opposed to a digital twin? Uh, I don't know. It was from an we online were, article. <laughs> I think we there were saying now a digital that. clone of Shanghai being created. So they were saying digital clone was, a, I think, basically a 3D model. Isn't that the same as an identical twin, then, potentially? You've got, like, non-identical twins, identical twins. I thought it was more of a, uh, like, a digital... Mannequin. But I, I have got I thought it was more of a digital mannequin. Highways stuff. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's that interesting part, isn't it? Because is it a digital twin, or is that kind of connection between the physical and digital worlds a prerequisite for in this case mobility as a service but actually everything in our future economy does our future economy and society rely on digital twins which one of the things i find interesting about your interview with um it's michael greaves isn't it that the big granddaddy of digital things was was his reluctance it felt to get dragged into um the idea of digital twins of processes and workflows and, and you know, the innate function of human society. He's, he seemed very clear that he wanted it to be attached to the physical world. So potentially by recognizing the need to be able to manage these, you know, connections, we are extending the metaphor of the digital twin for want of a better metaphor. And it is just a metaphor and yeah. to him. Um, I think often and about all sorts of stuff. Sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> so I was involved in a Highways England hackathon last year in Milton Keynes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I heard about that. Um, and it was basically, here's 50 gig of data, do stuff with it. That was basically the brief, improve highways. And um, we, I had three data scientists on my team that were insanely good at crunching stuff. And I was the guy doing the PowerPoint. I also ended up in an, inside an InfoWorks model for a while in a, in a VR headset, which was, which was basically my contribution. But um, they were hiring to collect, collect kind of real-time traffic data, instant data from, from motorways. And the concept we came up with was, at the minute, Hiring and gives a risk factor on a, on a road stretch. It's saying this is the chance of you being injured or in a crash on this stretch of road at any given point. But what 
the data scientists proved by crunching all the data that was available was that over a given day, the chance of you being in a crash significantly changed over that over that day. So I, I think it was obviously rush hour on the M62 was actually safer than like three o'clock in the morning, basically. So the concept they came up with was they could collect this this data that was being collected every day and feed that to cars to say, here here is your journey, here is the risk factor of that journey. Do you want a safer route, basically? And I thought that was a really powerful business case, even though there's probably not probably not a three D model of it, but it is collecting data of a live network and improving or, or reducing the risk of a crash in that network based on real time analytics. It was literally, obviously, the complexity of doing that on is quite hard. But the the theory we came up with was on your sat nav, you could be given a traffic light score of your route based on the data that's being fed to it from the network. Um, and that would be a significant benefit to road users because then if the road was really risky, people would choose a different route, kind of like a lot of the way stuff's done now. But I thought it was a really strong business case, A, to probably save lives, reduce crashes, increase the net, give people alternative routes based on not just traffic, but risk as well. I thought it was quite, quite an interesting um, idea for the use. Not, it wasn't really digital twins at the time because it was a but it was a potential benefit uh, to, to the road network. I, I think this is a good illustration of, I think the rub that um, Michael Greaves had about including humans in the digital twin ecosystem is because for example, and I think roads are, and especially smart motorways, for example, is um, it relies on a level of compliance from a behavior perspective. Um, you know, you can show a sign to say, don't use, you know, this 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 lane's closing in X amount of distance, and I wonder how many people you know, just keep going and keep going and keep going until they actually have to move over a type type stuff. And I think it's the same thing for that. As it, one of those people, can I say that zip merging is what you're supposed to do? And I would like to tell the lorry drivers on the M62 that I am actually complying with the rules when I go all the way up to that junk, all the way up to where it closes and merge in. Um, but <laughs> I'm winding everyone else up in that merge. Oh, they hate me. Oh, Who's that me. guy? Yeah. You know. well, they, 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 they see a beamer. They, they, they already know. They see a beamer in their rear view mirror. Yeah. They, they with with your soft top down and your scarf on and your racing goggles and leather gloves on, just doing 90 miles an hour. Probably Henry. <laughs> <laughs> Can we change the subject? <laughs> Go on, Neil. Sorry, we've we've got, but it's the. I guess what we're saying is the. I think there's one thing, and this is back to back to Ian. Is yeah, there's one thing to collect all this data, turn that data into an emoji that goes onto people's cars. You know, that that customer interface is must be quite a difficult thing to to achieve. Yeah, and I, we're obviously living in the age of. Um, platforms and, and obviously the economies of scale and the network effects that accrue to platforms. So one of the debates we're often having is what is the role of a public sector organization in the age of Google and Waze and, and TomTom and, and, and the likes. Um, and, and this would obviously extend to any sort of digital twins produced is it, it, there's no point us merely trying to replicate the functionality that already exists within other platforms. Yeah. Um, and we need to be relatively circumspect about what the traveling public wants to hear from uh, from a public organization versus the people that, that provide services into, into their phone. Um, and I think this was kind of something I was wondering about, you know, given that you guys are, as I understand it, predominantly consultants is like, how do you, how do you feel like a public organization should go about clienting, you know, digital twins, given that any sort of platform development will start to accrue those network effects and, and, and start to start to lock, potentially lock particular suppliers in. I, think I was it, thinking for my Waze app, there is an option to avoid troublesome junctions. And I think it doesn't work in the UK because it's looking at, uh, the kind of typical American junction where it's 
um, like those uh, delivery drivers discovered uh, taking three rights was quicker than a left, that sort of thing. But if there was some relationship and there was data available to Waze and TomTom and Google Maps and all that sort of stuff that enabled some settings for me as the user because I'm always trying to optimize my journeys because I want to get there. I want to get there as quickly as possible, but I am a bit of a fuel efficiency nerd as well. So I don't really want to stop too much. So if that means traveling on the inside lane of the motorway at 60 miles an hour, which is by the way, what I always do and never do anything else. Um, <laughs> You're that guy. <laughs> that is my official position. Um, Your Honour, um, then it, it it enables new behaviours potentially having this this interconnectedness between these systems. It, it's an interesting interesting concept that you've just raised there, Gordon. Over kind of Ian. Um, Ian. sorry, Ian. Oh, I, I Ian. So it's just a massive. There's a massive Gordon on my screen. That's the problem. I'll start <laughs> point again. That's a really interesting point you've uh, you've raised there, Ian. Over the kind of idea of a market being monopolized. If you're the consultant on the framework that's got the digital twin for highways or for any any kind of public sector client, they kind of potentially lock to you. And I'm just going to side with Prod Henry. You can go back to the discussions we had uh, back at our previous position, Henry, where we talked about owning the having the opportunity to own the client data and host the client data. We saw that as a, a huge opportunity um, to kind of lock a client into you and, and, and create a really strong long-term strategic um, partnership with a client. But the majority of consultant firms, were, when they start to dig into the legalities of hosting, owning, maintaining, they kind of freak out at it because it's completely different to what they've done. They're not providing the service. They're becoming like an Amazon Web Services or something like that. So it's, it's quite a scary concept for them. But say if, I mean... The, the consultant market is going through uh, big long words, but market consolidation fragmentation paradox, where the bigger people are getting bigger, the smaller people are getting smaller, and the middle market is dying. Um, so you are in a position where the biggest people are going to own this. So someone like uh, Atkins, they could they could they could easily uh, be the guy that controls a huge collection of digital twins. But the, the medium consultant isn't going to do that. Kind of like an innovator die thing. But it's pause, pause there a second in terms of referring to podcasts that we've recorded already. So I don't know, Henry, the thing that Chris, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention it and we can cut it out if it doesn't work. Okay. 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 So in um, a podcast that we have with Chris Taylor, who's a games designer, he talks about the market dynamics of the gaming industry and he talks about what used to be a long tail of the industry. Um, where you had sort of this incremental scale of games going along sort of like a conveyor belt, as it were. You had the AAA games at one end and then um, indie games at the other. He spoke about what's happened now. It's now an inverted U. So you have this massive collection of like in innovative games that sit here. There's nothing in the middle. Mm. And then there's the AAA games. And the AAA games get budgets of hundreds of millions. And the small ones you know are, are equivalents to startups and there's absolutely mm -hmm. nothing in the middle no, just you know and it's almost a unicorn state isn't it it's in, it, sometimes one will get picked up from the um the innovative end will receive a hundred million dollars worth of investment and will cross the cavern and i think what you've just described there um jonathan is exactly the same thing i think if we're not too careful we will create that inverted u-curve market shape where you've got people that have um you know, one of the things I've referred it to is um, the, a digital moat. If you can, if you can churn enough data, a little bit like Google, if you could churn enough data, you, you'd have, you know, due to the restrictions of computing power, you, you would never be able to catch up because you'd need to exceed physics to catch up with them. Um, we may get ourselves into that situation. That might be a good thing or a bad thing, but for the gaming industry, that was a bad thing. And I do think um, that that system could be um, troublesome. I mean, how, I mean, back to your question, Ian, how, how, how can um, essentially owners and operators of our critical national infrastructure encourage a better system, I think is, you know, I think 
it's kind of, I don't want to get too theoretical on the role of the state, but the protection of citizens and the protection of data is something that's really key um, in terms of its appropriate use. And its appropriate use does fall into uh, roles around monopolies, duopolies, duopolies, oligopolies, whatever. Is, and it's just making sure that, um, you know, if there is a monopoly that does good with data, then that's great, but we haven't come across one yet. So um, just, just making sure that that somehow through your commercial mechanisms or through laws and regulations that you're able to keep hold of that um, protecting the citizen aspect. Because as soon as you lose that, that's it. You might as well just pack your bags and go home. Couldn't agree more. And I think um, creating an open playing field for the supply chain and retaining ownership of your data are essentially the same thing, right? So if, and again, it goes back to this distinction between the kind of supporting data architecture and the, and the applications that sit on top. So provided, to, to me, one of the key things we can do to make sure that we're protecting public interest, protecting public data, protecting expenditure of taxpayers' money is ensure that whatever applications are built in the digital twin space for a public organization, we can extract potentially not just the data itself, but also the logic that we have funded so that we can move from between proprietary solutions and, and we're never locked into a particular vendor. I think that that goal, which is obviously echoed in the Gemini principles, is is really laudable and is something we should be aiming for. But clearly, mm. you know, the, the platforms and the types of technology that are most analogous to digital twins in this space, so BIM, CAD, GIS, they're not exactly massively competitive fields, you know, they, they are they are types of software where one or two suppliers, for better or for worse, have kind of cornered the market. Yeah. And, and it feels like a tension in digital twin world that, that certainly comes up in your podcast a lot and hasn't really been worked through very much. Mm. Um, yeah, definitely something I'm conscious of when we're spending money in this space and, and kind of open to ideas as to how we avoid getting locked into that sort of thing. Maybe a, 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 a quick a quick pause, and I've got a new title for this podcast: Digital Twins, a Unicorn State. <laughs> unicorn yeah, state of mind. I mean, I'm a fan of the fact it has the word unicorn in. So. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, a unicorn state. But uh, I, I obviously we'll chat about uh, Jonathan. England. Sorry, to, to, I think Simon I, Simon's been signalling that he's wanting okay. to say something. Yes. So. I keep on putting my thumb up and then disappears in a few seconds. I'm not sure if that's a Zoom thing or someone keeps on putting my thumb down. Henry. Definitely, <laughs> Henry. Not, no, it's not Definitely me. Henry. So it's um, I mean, the, what I was going to say is actually now passed with events. So I'll just redirect and say, kind of linking that to the podcast from gaming and one of the earlier things we were talking about around how you know, digital twins could be the good, the bad, and the ugly. I thought this might be a good time to to step into talking about some parallels with other games we've been talking about. Over yeah, to Henry on, for that. Bring on the explainer. I've been looking forward to this. Here we go. <laughs> We're now entering the world where Henry becomes our dungeon master or oh. the digital twin universe. The digital and, twin master. All right, everybody. Just for the, uh, the listeners, Henry has just put a wizard's hat on and a cape. Um, you already had it on. He just revealed them. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. This is my true form. Uh, I'm glad to, well, I'm glad you've uh, all joined us here today. You meet in a tavern. No, I'm, I'm not going to. We're not going to. We're not going <laughs> to do a live D&D game off the cuff. That's not happening. Um, <laughs> so we, my first we, experience of Dungeons and Dragons, I'm already enjoying it. <laughs> everybody roll for initiative. No. Um, wh where am I going with this, Simon? We, so okay, so the, the, the hand over there. The, yeah, the critical yeah, part I'll, that comes I'll, I'll set the, the hand alignment. again. The alignment, so the, okay. the alignment part is, yeah. So we have an alignment chart that is good, neutral, and evil against lawful, neutral, and chaotic. And you form a grid with that. So you can be on one end of the scale, you can be lawful good, which is often seen as something that is very regulated. You're, you follow the rules, you do as you're told, and you do the right thing. Um, all the way down to chaotic evil, which is you are moving fast and breaking things, 
but that's it. You're just moving fast and breaking things. You aren't making anything good. You're just breaking stuff for the sake of it. And it seems that there are multiple ways in which you can be good and evil um, and lawful and chaotic in the digital twin space. Because if you are being uh, lawful, you know, you have to, for example, like Highways England, you have to be lawful. You have to look after this data appropriately. Um, but perhaps if you're um, a, a mover and a shaker in this space, then you might want to be more chaotic and just try stuff and see what happens. And maybe it will work and maybe it will help or maybe it will bring down the fall of Western civilization. Who knows? Um, and so it's interesting to think about the alignment chart with digital twins in this wild west space that we live in at the moment um, for digital twins, where we know potentially what we could be doing and we kind of know how to get there, but nothing is in place to protect the individual and nothing is really in place to protect the market except the principles the gemini principles do fill that function and we need to look at things that currently exist in this space and maybe try and work out where they fit into the alignment grid so what would be an example of a chaotic digital twin do you think guys i think that's a really good opening question and I'm going to kind of answer it by not answering it. Um, cool. from, from my thought is, I think it's really relevant as a, as a frame, an opening frame, because it's easy for us to be quite altruistic about these things, isn't it, with digital twins and be more in the lawful good. So you'll see this when people refer to data in general. Like, I don't know if you've been involved in these type of conversations where you'll, you'll start talking about a problem and then suddenly it'll evolve into people just going, oh, let's just sort out the data. Oh, we'll just sort out the data, it'll be great. And then you just kind of go down this hole of just let's be altruistic and sort out all the raw data and it'll be absolutely fantastic. And it feels like a lot of the framing of, of twins is more in that space and really not looking at the chaotic and evil side of things. And I think what was really interesting here, I'm going to then bounce over to somebody else, is Ian, you wrote a really interesting LinkedIn post that kind of sparked some of this conversation that unpacked part of this. Um, and I think that raised some really kind of interesting perspectives, particularly on on twins and this, uh, yeah, the lawful evil or chaotic evil side of it. Yeah, so the, the post was titled with classic clickbait titling, five <laughs> ways that digital twins could destroy society. And you'll um, never believe the sixth. <laughs> yeah, five celebrities you didn't realise were digital twins and you won't believe what they look like now. That was my alternate <laughs> title. And that was, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm usually relatively sceptical when it comes to new technologies, but I've kind of just allowed myself to be like a naive, excited little schoolboy when it comes to digital twins. You know, let my heart get broken. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, and I think, I think that's kind of reflected in the literature and, and a lot of the guests you've had on and, and, you know, flourishing systems and all that is we're still in this kind of, you know, exciting moment where no damage has been done. No one's been harmed. Like the world is, the world is going to change and we're the, we're the agents of change. And that's, that's, that's great. But I think just reflecting on, you know, some of us are old enough to have lived through the internet going from, and Neil, you've written about this very well, you know, the internet going away from something that was, you know, proper chaotic good leaning towards lawful good. You know, we have this amazing chaotic technology. How can we harness it to make the world a more exciting and, and democratic place? And, and we've realized that, that market forces have kind of guided that opportunity for lawful goods towards more lawful neutral, potentially even lawful evil, one might argue, in, in the form of, of Facebook and, and you know, the, the kind of co-opting of human identity and, and human psychology for the purposes of keeping us endlessly addicted to screens and, and making us vote for particular people and that sort of thing. And I, you know, I feel like that same thing could happen in digital twin space. And it's worth thinking about that in advance to see what we can learn in, in the same way that, you know, we're talking about BIM and BIS, you know, not being competitive markets and not necessarily being that open, you know, how can we, how can we avoid the same sort of fate in digital twin space? And then, you know, 
thinking a little bit further about what the most sophisticated manifestations of digital twins in our time are and, and realizing that probably the, the biggest and most complex digital representation of physical reality is the is the prison states that exist in, in authoritarian countries in this world where it's no longer a question of asking your your neighbors to report you to the police or whatever it's literally there's a camera outside your door there's facial recognition you know you have a you're not just leaving cookies on the internet you're leaving cookies in the real world and and, and they are quite literally being used to, to imprison you and, and whether that's in a literal prison or a, or a digital prison it's almost academic at that point so the, the the idea of how that you know and i loved your explanation of the alignment chart the idea of how that maps to the, the dungeons and dragons alignment sorry dragons alignment chart sort of occurred to me after the fact but i think if we don't think about chaotic evil lawful evil even chaotic goods digital twins and what the consequences of those are we're, we're going to be in trouble particularly as we're in the space of infrastructure where bloody hell like these are literally bits of you know assets that can that can hurt people and, and, and unfortunately do from time to time hurt people like it, it's very rare in the digital world that you have such a literal connection to the safety case um but if if we do fully integrate our networks into their digital manifestations these are these are safety critical pieces of technology that can have unknown influence and bias upon the lives of people including disadvantaged groups who, who may not who will definitely not be in control of the platforms that are being used to make decisions mm. on their behalf. So there are a couple of evil things that I could think of that could happen. Um, I think uh, a common fear when it comes to things like the internet of things is hackers. And <laughs> I feel like uh, not necessarily out of being intentionally evil, but just out of being chaotic and causing evil, you could potentially in the future cause a massive accident if you could wrest control of uh, certain highways controls you know you could you could turn all the green lights on so everybody at the junction is going and they batter each other and we so thinking about like the chaotic evil piece and to build on henry's comment there with the idea of a national digital twin or digital twins of major infrastructure systems, are we not potentially creating a whole new area and a whole new type of crime? Because at the minute you've got cybercrime, you've got people getting hacked, you've got, uh, there was a really interesting um, incident a few weeks ago with a major satellite navigation provider and sports computer provider where they were, they, were, they were hacked and all their data was lost and everything went down for like two weeks. If we had, from Henry's point, a, a, a twin of the motorway or the motorway network, are we not potentially giving people the opportunity to hack that and hold those ransom? Or just shut down the motorway to, to be nasty? And, and you might not even be aware that it's happening. You know, Stuxnet mm. showed us that if you're clever about how you write your, your bugs, they, they don't reveal Dude. themselves to the, the system operators till it's too late. I'm wondering that was very interesting. Making a kind of a, a, a link into current pandemic, post-pandemic worlds. I know we've talked about this in some of our other podcasts as well, but exactly in that, we we saw when the beginning of the lockdown, particularly in the UK, happened, there was a, a rapid shift for organizations to work from home, naturally, because of the requirement to. And organizations which uh, before were unable to or had said they were not able to for various reasons to work from home very rapidly could and systems that would normally be rolled out in months with all the rigor behind them were done in a matter of days so i was speaking to one um i guess peer in another company and he was saying they had a change program to roll out teams for example they did in three days not nine months now of course in an enterprise level that's fine but if we look at other parts of let's say the the infrastructure the built environment ecosystem how many vulnerabilities have we inadvertently opened up because of this need to act quickly and maybe not the due diligence or the technical skill set in place to know what you were doing? So completely to that lawful evil or chaotic evil part of things, that can now be, it's out there, it's exposed, you know, how much of that is going to be personal identifiable information that now someone for a bit of fun could tap into and bam, there's a huge instant that's occurred. 
And I think we're going to see that legitimately in the fallout of COVID. There's just going to take one company, you know, one company to go bankrupt because of they've um, had a huge data leak on the back of this and everything will change. Yeah, which brings us back to the point about getting the common architecture figured out first before you go and Absolutely. Buy, buy your shiny things. But I, I think, honestly, like, I'm probably less worried about the, the hackers. You know, I think, you know, true evil tends to be self-limiting, right? In that it's not a particularly appealing way to spend your time for most people. And, and, and it's also kind of tends to reveal itself ultimately. I think what we've definitely learned this year is that it's more the inadvertent, like unseen biases in our systems that are probably going to cause more damage. Um, I think we've definitely learned that power structures tend to reinforce themselves without even anyone doing anything deliberate. Like that's just the nature of the capitalist society we, we work in. And particularly when you're talking about platforms and all of the network effects and the like that accrue to them that we've already talked about. So I'm, I'm, whilst worried about hackers for sure I'm, I'm more worried about the kind of neutral lawful cases where where we're using digital twins to optimize our investment without thinking about all of the the factors that affect particular you know disadvantaged groups you know I'm, mm. the 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 idea that comes to me is or the scenario rather is you know we try and optimize traffic flow within a system within a within a city for example we find ways of changing the traffic patterns that, um, that mean we can fit, you know, 20% more cars in at Russia or whatever, which I'm sure is entirely possible with a good digital twin. But what we don't account for is the fact that, you know, the, the people that live next to major thoroughfares and major road arteries tend to be less advantaged mm. than people that don't. And, and therefore you're taking this existing concentration of noise and pollution. And because you haven't factored it into your model, you're reinforcing it and, and you're enacting yet more punishment upon mm. these communities, even though you had perfectly decent, you know, it, it, intentions when you, when you created the model in the first instance, mm. and, quite, you know, if I don't know how we control for that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Cause it's the, it's, it's a symptom of the, where the optimization problem is. So, you know, you say about pollution, I think the interesting thing for me is when you think, when you think about automotive and all of the clever people, all those engineers in the automotive world were given the optimization of problem of make this car more efficient from a cost and performance perspective. Sounds like a great idea. We want this thing to be efficient. Um, what we actually created was, uh, you know, a car that was functional, uh, you know, make what? I, I just think of driving around my streets here and I, I feel like my, I feel like my parents, when I say this, I go down the road that I grew up in. Every car had one car on the drive. I go down there now and most of the houses have two or three cars. Mm. So we created this space where the optimization problem was slightly, sort of slightly focused on providing cheap cars. We weren't optimized on providing cheap transport, which is two fundamentally different questions. So through optimizing the yeah, so optimizing through the engineers on efficient cars means that we've created essentially an ecological disaster from an emissions perspective and congestion. You know, if that if if we were more systemic in our thinking around transport and thinking of effective and cheap transport, it's a completely different problem. And I, I, I want, but is it is it because and going back to the digital twin piece is you know. We can only focus on the problems that we can physically compute. So computing the optimization of a car is far easier than the computing of the optimization of, a, you know, a, an interconnected transport system. And I just wonder, is it, is it just purely a function of available computing power and connectivity? We're now in a space where we can have a very low level of, of connectivity between systems. And we're just, we're, it's just the, we're on the cusp of it. We're on the cusp of it now because technology is now able to do that. I guess and that taking comes... it. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that that takes us back full circle to this idea of the ontology and, and what that unlocks and that, you know, noise pollution, deprivation, proximity to roads. These are all relationships and concepts that can be modeled in an ontolo ontological data model that would be quite difficult to model in a more, you know, conventional 
entity relationship data model. So if we can build that multi-dimensional schema with enough with enough dimensions, you know, there will still be these biases, but we can hopefully reduce their uh, reduce their impact. I think that's just to go back to down to the measurement of the and that kind of, sorry, it comes back down to the uh, the way that we would measure things conventionally, going back to emissions with the various scandals that the Volkswagen Group went through. You can demonstrate compliance very well and you have complied your butt off, but have you made it better? And the fact that we are we are measuring on one thing makes it much harder to actually be certain that what you're measuring is bringing about that benefit. So yeah, I'd agree that having a much more multi-dimensional approach and being able to use more data would enable, not, not necessarily make it happen, but it would certainly enable uh, a, a fairer measurement system that is actually demonstrating some value, not just a number. That's it. <laughs> I was about to. Uh, that is the, the end of today's podcast. Thank to, you, Henry. Because <laughs> you think about to build on that point in the in the digital twin space. Because I was about to say that exact same thing, Henry. Because the uh, car manufacturers were required to demonstrate compliance with the thing. Everyone became competitive. It got to a point where they had to basically start lying. Could we get to a space where twins or, or twins or bar infrastructure have to do a certain thing, and basically people just start bending the data? to say, yeah, we are compliant, we're cost efficient, when in reality it's not. We, do you think we can get into that space and how will we avoid our industry doing that? Because it, it, we, we love our industry and the infrastructure that we're building around it loves compliance. It loves, if, if it can demonstrate its compliance, if it can give you a piece of paper to say our digital twin is compliant with X, Y, and Z, it would love to do that rather than necessarily demonstrating what well, ours is adding public good, but it isn't compliant with what you want it to be. As an example, yeah, definitely, and it's the, it's going to be a cost, isn't it? The cost of freedom is eternal vigilance, and the cost of quality is going to be eternal vig vigilance in this space as well. And I can say the word vigilance. And vigilance. also, kind of, so it connects nicely with a book that um, uh, Paul Campion recommended to me quite a few months ago. It's called "We Are the Weather" by I'm going to pronounce the surname completely wrong here, Jonathan For. And the book's really interesting. It talks about a couple of things and two particular areas it touches on. Um, I haven't got through to the end of it, but the areas I've got to so far is kind of the idea that humans can quite easily deny something that's blatantly obvious. And it talks about the idea of climate change, for example, and how that is something that's happening, but yet it seems that we are unable to act. And also the one talked in, uh, about the atrocities that happened around World War II as well and saying how they try to flag some of these to the various people, but people's responses was, you know, I'm just unable to believe what you've told me. Uh, it can't possibly be true. You've presented me with compelling evidence, but I just don't believe it. And it's kind of linking that to kind of some of what we might see come out of, of this saga with twins and the outputs of it, that we're going to see all these various things come into play, but then actually our condition as humans will mean we just actually just can't acknowledge that we're going into a state of uh, Skynet, maybe mm. throwing various analogies together here, but, if something happens sufficiently slowly and it's sufficiently complicated and climate change definitely falls into that category, we, we, we're kind of psychologically incapable of noticing it. It just doesn't fit with the metabolic rate of our brain or whatever. You know? Absolutely. And I feel like, I don't know whether digital twin will fall into that bucket, but it could do, right? We do. Well your phone's slowly done that though, hasn't it? If you think about what a mobile phone was 15 years ago, it has slowly evolved into this thing that is basically tracking every aspect of what you do every day. Like even with you combining it with a watch, you've got your health data, you've got your heart rate, you've got how many steps you take, you've got where you go, when you leave. It is collecting a heck of a lot of stuff about you and that kind of crept up on people. They didn't over a state of probably about 10 years, you form one from a device where you got a text message and a phone call to a device that is literally everything about you ever and everything you've done, everywhere you go, everything you do is on that thing. And that and kind of just, and and just slowly happened. And the interesting part is there, what that might have done in terms of us as, as individuals and our skill sets and what we can 
now do or what we now just assume a machine will do for us. So the example I'm going to use here in terms of the skills is um, it's, I don't know the exact study to hand, but there's been some research that's shown that newer graduates now coming out of various schools aren't necessarily as capable of reading a 2D map or a 2D drawing as maybe people would have been 10, 15 years ago. And therefore the medium of presenting has now had to shift to being 3D because it's that 2D, let's say reading and digesting is not a skill people possess and putting spatial awareness to a 2D drawing. So what I'm kind of getting at here is a very simple one that through the evolution of technology, our ability to do a task is now not, no longer possible or is changed. Of course, whether or not we need to read 2D drawings is a different thing altogether now, but are we going to see that reliance happen on when a twin comes into play and we'll be answering questions that we as humans used to, just like with mobile phones doing things we as humans used to, we quite happily allow it to take over because of convenience, lose the skill set to be able to do it, and then where does that leave us, especially if the human's not in the loop later on down the line? Well, it's also, you know, it's, it's not even, I mean, even in my time, I'm just thinking of, you know, I was, I was a scout and I used to sail and you, you, maps, easy peasy. Uh, I try and interface with a 2D map on my phone. Um, I'm surprised how much I, you rely on the, the, the cone that emits from your position. Um, mm. Rather than looking know. around and observing, oh, there's yeah, a road it's, there. It's, I have to make sure I line that up oh, first no. <laughs> to orientate myself. It's the, um, the orientation to north naturally thing is, is something that is eroding in my sort of natural capability, which is, I find quite, quite strange. But I, I guess it's the debate of, um, it's, almost, it's almost like the, you know, uh, the uh, handwriting and writing by hand. Is that a relevant skill? Yeah, in the world of voice recognition and typing, it's. I think it's. It's a similar thing. Is the well, so what? Um, uh, you know, the outcome is the communication of a thing to somebody else or into some form of technology. It's. It feels a sad word, doesn't it, when people are no longer able to write. <laughs> but <laughs> they, can, they can type, but they don't know how to hold a pen. Or, um, or spell, because autocorrect is doing that. Does it for you? Yeah. Sorry, Ian's just trying to say something. Well, I mean, if I can ask questions, questions for you guys, because I'm conscious that you are people of influence in the digital twin community, one way or another. Congratulations. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> You've got the recorded right, Henry. <laughs> oh, that's the tagline of the episode, that's, isn't it? That's the podcast, just that on loop. So I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how do you feel you can influence the movement to avoid those unintended consequences? That's question one. And, and secondly, to what extent do you think that depends on it remaining an open platform and, and not getting into this proprietary vendor lock-in where you have less ability to influence? Mm. I think um, the purpose of setting this podcast up was purely about what you're saying. I think you know, Jonathan and I were both frustrated about what you were just saying and um you know let's have a conversation about that we have the opportunity now to use uh you know recording equipment's cheap we can transmit it to the world for next to nothing um let's let's open up the conversation so i think that's a that's a starting point because when people go to find information what we'd hope is when you type in digital twins into google it doesn't take you off to a vendor it may hopefully take you off to things like this podcast, the Digital Twin Hub um, on the National Digital Twin Program and other communities that are out there. But it's the, I think that's the first thing is the, how do you create credibility around the community and connecting people? I think the broader market issue is, I'm torn. I think in the old world and what happened with the BIM world was, and I'm not saying BIM's the old world, I'm saying old world plus BIM world um, <laughs> is, they, they basically turned around to all the client organizations and said, it's your procurement and it's your contracts and those are the problem. Like, you're the problem, not us. Um, I don't quite, there is an element of that. I think it's six or one and a half a dozen or the other, but I think it's um, also being mature, having, having a, a more mature conversation about IP, having a more mature conversation about data, slightly different, and then having a more mature um, relationship uh, around um, communicating the benefits of installing this type of technology to the public 
And there's also an interesting part there, sorry, on, on influence. So when you're saying what would show up when it comes to like digital twin into a search engine, I just did it then um, in one of the available search engines out there that everyone probably uses. And uh, the first 20 results, no surprise, vendors. are vendors um, or people of organizations of significant financial resources. So it's a really, really interesting question. How do we as this community and, and the listeners help shape it in the lens of the fact that actually when it comes to getting messages out there, you're fighting up against people who have a lot of resources to be able to make themselves the top 20 results on a leading search engine. Think about 10 years ago, 50, 50, 50 years ago in our collection of different industries, we were heavily undigitized and a little bit naive. Um, thinking to a very recent letter that went to a major vendor that was publicized everywhere. <laughs> Which vendor was that? I don't, I, I don't know. I was thinking about that search engine, Ask Jeeves, Ask Jeeves you just use, Simon. Maybe you should put it in that one. Well, do you know, actually, that, that particular vendor is anyway. in the list of top 20. It's not. Well, it won't be. But we were, we were very naive in the way we adopted uh, that we, we tried to achieve the thing. It was like, you buy some stuff off a shelf, or in that case, it was, here's a free thing off a shelf. And that cost has just been exponential. Uh, but I think um, our industry has matured enough now to it actually thinks about what it does a little bit more with technology because it has implemented so much tech all over the place, common data environments, collaboration systems, teams, 3D design, real time, uh, gaming engines, different reality systems. And I think it's got to a point where it, when it invests in a technology, it thinks about it a little bit more and it thinks about that kind of long-term um, impact of buying that tool and sticking it into a project. So I think we just need to make sure, and I think I think Neil's right. This this what we're trying to do here is not let not not we don't want to see major clients investing in something that's just going to wreck their lives for 20, 15 years because they've bought a thing and that's their twin solution, and now they have to spend 10 years backing it because they've just put all their eggs in one basket within it six months, mm. and. That's basically what we don't want it to repeat itself. And I think Simon's been back on Ask Jeeves again, hasn't he? Yeah, I have. <laughs> I was, was going to say, say before, that, before you get your point going, uh, I'm going to wrap it up shortly. That's all right. I've got one more point to make, and it's yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it, well, two points. The first, exactly on that, then that plays to the um, a digital twin being a methodology and maybe not a technology. If we focus on the tech too much, that's when we get the vendor lock in. The second one is more exciting. If I type in digital twin and start to type club, it did come up saying clubhouse. And I thought that would be awesome. <laughs> I'm actually having a digital twin clubhouse, but also digital twin club without the word fan. Um, the number one to 15 results are us. Yay. In various LinkedIn, Facebook, Apple, listening notes, SoundCloud, buildings.co.uk, apparently Spotify, Landor. Oh, that's not us. Because we all know what we're talking about and we're all extremely knowledgeable, experienced. And there's a clubhouse needed. <laughs> and we, we have do. some really cool infographics. Can it be a dream okay. house? It has to be um, a digital house, surely. Um, so just to build on a bit, a bit of a pause, what do we need to do to wrap up this episode? I think we've got some good content that's talking about I, highways. It's been excellent. We've got some D&D &D stuff. <laughs> Here we go, Henry. Henry's I'm ready. Done. I'll catch you guys later. Thanks, Neil. Peace. Peace, Neil. That was a really good episode. Um, thanks very much. Well, you, you scared me at the start by mentioning the quote boring episode. I was like, oh shit, I don't want to be boring episode number two. Boring <laughs> episode? Did we say that? Who said yeah. that? Uh, I think Ooh. that was. The, well, I'm not going to name names, but yeah. It's probably been paranoid this whole time. Uh, no. Oh, she's back. Vicky's back. What does Vicky want? Can I do my outro, please? Yeah. yeah. Yep, do the outro. So, so it seems that there are definitely things to watch in this space there are problems that we've come across before there are big societal impacts that that could really damage the society and damage people individually but there is reason to be hopeful because we have in a sense played this game once already before so we have the wisdom of all those years of going through these processes of digitizing understanding intellectual property understanding platforms so watching terminator think, watching terminator watching robocop we have we have been through 
through this one time already. So I think this is our second go at it. And we can learn from the mistakes that we made in the past. And we have made mistakes. And I think there is reason to be optimistic. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Special guest, Ian Gordon. 